Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper, and now on other mysteries as well. On today's episode of Off the Shelf, I am joined by John Reese, co-host of Sherlock from Adler to Amberley, and Jonathan Menges, host of RipperCast. We will be discussing the case of the Salmon Sandwiches by M.W. Oldridge. If you haven't yet picked up a copy, we encourage you to hit pause, order it, and after you've made a meal of it, come back to us when you're done. We initially tried to do this episode without spoilers because we felt that the book was best enjoyed without knowing the twists and turns, but our good intentions fell by the wayside as we started discussing it, so we do warn you, if you choose to proceed, there are spoilers. In October 1930, Alice Thomas set out with her husband and their neighbor, Annie Hearn, to enjoy an afternoon outing at the seashore. They stopped at a tea shop where they consumed a pile of salmon sandwiches that had been prepared and presented by Annie Hearn. Within hours of the sandwiches' consumption, Alice would be stricken with a grave illness from which she would not recover. In a matter of weeks, she would be dead. As Alice declined and slowly died, people began to wonder about the behavior of her husband, about the behavior of the widow Annie, and about just what exactly had been in those sandwiches. Had she been poisoned? And if so, how had it been managed in a pile of haphazardly offered fare? This is the case of the Salmon Sandwiches, and we hope you enjoy it in true book club fashion with a glass of your favorite beverage and a bite of something, hopefully non-lethal, to nibble on. All right, so today we are here to talk about the case of the Salmon Sandwiches by M.W. Oldridge. Before we get started, we wanted our listeners to know, as a bias disclaimer, that the author is a friend of the show, Ripper Cast. He has appeared on our show before. Um, however, the only bias that will be in the review is basically based on my own personal preferences. I have read um, off the author's work before and I've enjoyed it, which was why I chose to pick this book, basically because I assumed I was going to like it and color me shameful, but I wanted to pick something I thought I might like to read because I really don't like reading junk all that often, and I assumed that I would enjoy it, so I picked it. Um, I do have some criticisms, and I will be uh, disclosing those criticisms, as I assume the boys will as well. So um, again, just getting our biases out of the way so that the listener can choose to give our opinions uh, whatever merit they feel they're worth. Okay, so let's get started. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. John, John, thanks for joining me today. Always a pleasure. So, John Reese, tell me, what did you think of the case of the Salmon Sandwiches by M.W. Aldridge? Absolutely awful. Couldn't stand it. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, a very enjoyable read. Um, I'm for, for the I think for the uh, ease of reference, we're going to refer to the author as Mark because that's his name rather than Aldridge. Um, but uh, yeah, Mark's got this ability to make even the most dense and boring uh, um, aspects of the book um, you know the statistical analysis of that type of thing interesting so um, yeah all the way through I was never bored um, some parts were quite gripping he, know, he knows how to structure it like like a novel um, rather than just a straight retelling of the facts so yeah I, I really enjoyed it. Jonathan Menges? I really enjoyed it too and I agree with uh, John Reese. Um 
it seems like he put a lot of care and attention to every single paragraph he wrote in that book and and it is pretty novelistic and and it's a different kind of true crime book than um what you typically come across um it kind of is like a throwback i think to like um the book takes place in the interwar period and i and you get the sense that in his language style which i could hear his voice could you all hear him yes speaking yeah. the words to the in the book like almost like an audiobook was playing in your head while you were reading it and i it was, think that might be difficult to people who don't know that could be a, a difficulty because i could literally hear him mm-hmm. in my head talking as he writes right um but it, it it's kind of like a throwback to like um a more um you know mark's involved in the notable trial series uh and um and so in a way that book is like it's it's almost like an extension of that kind of interwar period you know golden age of crime writing style but it's uh, not the the hard boiled kind of like boilerplate detective. Was and also he, the period of the Agatha Christie, um, you know the these um, cozy country murder mysteries, yeah. quite often poisonings. Nothing really salacious about them, you know. There, 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 there's no sex involved. It's just you know uh, domestic um, you know. kind of conflicts and things. Yeah. He has a real gift and there are certain moments in the book where he'll just write like a little sentence, a little line that completely exposes the personality of people, just general people's characteristics, people as a whole, the humanity of people, good and bad, the very poignant moments of personal failings and personal hopes and it makes me so angry because i can't write that well and it oh my gosh and i just and one i'm i'm mad that he doesn't write more books because this is like what he wrote like the moat farms murders he wrote like why doesn't this man write more books he has some lines in there that are amazing insights into human characteristics that um really expose people for who they are and it's it's kind of annoying i i really don't like him right now i have to interview him later and i'm very mad (laughs) at him and i'm just like how dare you because i love good writing i really do mm. but but he the he he does that um one sentence to expose the person um as they truly are kind of thing you were talking about he does it in a way because he is such a good writer to where the reader is like, uh, oh yeah, oh I, it was obvious. Like he says things that the reader might not be thinking, but then when he writes it, they they can follow his his thinking and say, yeah, oh, oh yeah, well, it's kind of staring you in the face kind of thing. When it's not, you know what I'm saying? It's hard to explain. And sometimes he just slyly, like he, he uh, one time when we were talking um, about him in the Petticoat Parlay podcast, and I said he has a great gift, like 
if I take somebody down, I can take somebody down with words, but like there's blood on the walls, you know, like it's a slaughterhouse. Whereas he'll just slide the knife in and walk away and it'll be 10 minutes before you just fall on the ground and know you're dead. And, 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 and that's the difference is that he has an elegant way, whether he's taking you out or, or not, he just slides the knife in and walks away. And I'm like, okay, um, well, I was, um, I'm familiar with the case until I read Mark's book. I, and there are probably a few British British crime history kind of, um, it seems like there was an overdrive of criminals in crime, like 1910 to 1940 when, and he name drops several of those uh, criminal cases in the book. Only a few of them I had heard of like William Wallace and, and the, but so a lot of a lot of these this particular crime um the the salmon sandwiches poisonings and, and Annie Hearn's um arrest and trial might have been familiar to most Brits I don't know John um, um but um to to an, the to your typical American like me there's just so many British crimes like you can't it's hard to like know, have known the details of all of them, you know? Yeah, no, I, as I wasn't familiar with this case um, at all, um, even though I've read one of the books that he, um, he mentions it's, it's mentioned and I've, I've read A is, A is for arsenic, which is like analysis of all of Agatha Christie's poisons and stuff like that, where apparently this is mentioned, but uh, no, I, 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 I don't think I'd even heard of this case. And Agatha Christie um, based um, one of her books on it, right? Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. The, I mean, the Sad something, or what was that book called of hers? The Sad Cypress, possibly, which was a fictionalized version of the Annie Hearn case. So coming at, at it cold was really nice. It's easier to get into a book a nonfiction book um if you're already pretty familiar with what the book's going to be about you know I think it's easier to enjoy a book probably if you're not coming at it completely cold but I guess I and all three of us came at this um case um had never having heard of it before and I mean, um I and he was I able to get us in pretty quickly I, I wouldn't say it came at it cold as such, you know, the, the case itself, um, you know, I, I wasn't aware of this specific case, but kind of for me, I was very familiar with the world it's set in, you know, because, you know, I, 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 I love Agatha Christie novels and, uh, and, and that period of crime writing. Right. So um, it felt like, I, th I think that's why it reminded me of a novel was because it did feel like, you know, like 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 a, a, a Poirot or a, or Miss Marple. Yeah. Um, from, yeah. One of the things I was interested in it is the. So did you guys watch? There was a British uh, BBC uh, fictionalized retelling of a of a famous murder, a more modern case recently. It was called uh, the Landscapers, where it took a famous mm -hmm. British murder case and it retold it from the telling of the 
the, the, there was a woman and a man who were convicted of murder and they reframed the murder basically from the wife's perspective where it was framed as she was basically kind of crazy and she was caught up in this fantastic world of movies where she was she viewed the whole world through this fantastic uh, fantasy life. And her husband was her movie star hero, saving her from the villain. And it was this blurring the lines of reality and fantasy. And while that wasn't exactly the case yes. in this book. Uh, I saw that movie. While that wasn't exactly the case in this book, there was a line in the book where, you know, the, 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 the villainess in this book, uh, she, she clearly had some of that fantasy uh, sort of thing going on. And, and there was a line in there where he talked about that, where he was like, we cannot truly empathize with the abstract motivations of those for whom reality and fantasy are, if not the same thing, at least blurred at their interface. And I thought of that and I was like, one, again, great line. And two, that's such an interesting idea of like, for these people where, uh, you know, because she clearly, like, we don't know her motivation, but there is that idea of uh, at what point does reality interfere with your, does your fantasy interfere with reality enough where, and it's kind of hard because I don't want to give away the book, but it's like, I don't want to spoil the book, but I want to talk about the book, but I don't want to spoil it to our readers. But you know what I'm saying in terms, I want to talk about that movie so I don't spoil the book is what I'm basically trying to say. But do you know that, I guess if you haven't seen the movie, never mind, it doesn't work, but. <laughs> um, I saw the movie, I didn't re recognize the name, but now that I've Googled it real quick, I did, I have seen that movie. It has a really creepy looking guy in it who's also like in, so many other movies he all the husband plays always typically plays it's like real weirdos but so so annie hearn has this element of fantasy living half in fantasy half in reality like you had said um and do you um, think that she actually said that he was coming as a blind to the cop or do you think the cop made it up like do you think she truly believed that uh, the husband was coming to visit her as a blind, like that because he was in love with her? Or do you think that that was just an invention by the police officer? Like, that was a question I had. Like, do you think I mean, that- I think it was an invention by the police officer. I mean, there's the possibility, of course, that if she, you know, if she did say it, she may not have actually believed it, but she may have been trying to put suspicion on, on the husband to give him motive. Um, Potentially, um, it's but, yeah. Uh, she because I don't I know what come. her motivation was. Well, that's the problem, is it? Yeah. Um, is 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 the lack of motive? Um, and the fantasy element, you know, the different various aspects of her life. She was a consummate liar, and she did live in this fantasy world. Yeah, and um, that. I don't believe that any of that uh, was uh, was um, thrown up um, at trial. Her lying about her being married, having a previous husband, and all this backstory that she invented. But those are elements that Mark puts in. It was reported in the press, I believe, and in subsequent accounts of the case, I not, think... but not introduced at trial. And that's kind of an element that Mark puts in for us as the reader 
to judge her guilt or innocence, you know? From what She's... I can recall, at the trial, um, they were um, questioning her about if her husband actually existed. So there was, there was a little bit of element of it at the trial, um, but it wasn't like as much as like, you know, her, her thing about that doctor's son and all, all that, you know, didn't come into it. But there, there was definitely question about, you know, were you really married? You know, did he really die? Did you place the adverts in the newspaper saying he died? You know, she's such a fascinating character. Like, this is why I like true crime because of characters like her, because she's so unhinged, but still functional for the most part. You wonder how do you get away? Like, how do people in your life let you go like this? You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you invent these worlds around you and everybody just go along with it? Like it's like, it's totally normal. I I don't know. Cause I, I had a friend in school who was a little bit like that, who would uh, make up stories about stuff like that. And we, we kind of just humor him like, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, um, so yeah, it's, you can kind of see how maybe people would just kind of humor to avo- avoid a confrontation, but really knowing that you know, it's all bullshit. I, and then they I, go and become a psychotic poisoning murderer and it's all Well, I, I, I don't think he did that, but yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, but I, I think she, pro- I, I'm wondering, you know, in terms of motive and stuff like that, um, you know, did she think that um, when, you know, Alice died, she'd be able to swoop in and be, you know, a comfort to the husband and, and stuff like that, you know. I, I, I don't know if love was necessarily the motivation, but... Because that wouldn't explain, like, the two other murders. Right. Well, and it seems like she did get her sister out of the way to And make... probably her aunt, right? Yeah, I think, I think the, the aunt is suggested maybe to be financial. Um, the because sister, they shared a boarding house. Yeah, the, the, the sister, you know, c- could be because the sister was a burden. Um, if she was quite sickly and frail and stuff like that, maybe she wanted to get out of the way so she could... You know, depends how much foresight she had. Um, it could be that she wanted to be, you know, kind of like a victim. She wanted to be, have the sympathy of... She could have had Munchausen's to some degree. Yeah, yeah. Or um, because she was the primary caregiver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, episodes. I guess it would be Munchausen's by proxy, not yeah. Munchausen, but yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or she wanted to be. She wanted the attention, the sympathy of being the grieving sister, uh, potentially. Um, I think there is a thing in psychology about that. I remember. I, I can remember from a. I can't remember what it's called, but uh, yeah, it's a bit like Munchausen's by proxy. Um, but yeah, um, I'm, I'm wondering if that's because she she certainly liked the attention she got from the after the trial of you know her trial, um, you know, writing her little autobiography thing, you know, and just in the shadow of the scaffold, and you know the um, the extracts from the diary and things like that. It's yeah. I don't know if I've actually made any coherent points there, but I've just let, you know, I'm just saying words. But what what it's interesting to me is, is that you think about all of these people who on the outside look just like perfectly normal people. And you think about this normal day of just you're going down, having lunch, and then 
the domino effect. And it's, there's a sense of one justice wasn't served because I don't know that we, 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 we do a lot of poisoning cases and in a lot of, of, of sense, a lot of times poison there, poisoners get away with it a lot of times because poison back then was an undetectable crime, but like, there's such a tragedy to this case of, you know, a woman living her life doing no harm to anyone. And she goes to lunch with her husband and dies for it. And all of these people whose lives were destroyed and there was no justice for it. And it's such an outrage. <laughs> it's like, I am like a hundred years later offended on their behalf. And that's good writing too, because I'm legitimately annoyed. Like I'm very much aggravated by the fact that there was no justice here and I'm very yeah. annoyed yeah. by it. And also for, for, for the husband as well, you know, the fact that he lived for nearly 20 years with, you know, kind of like that little suspicion about him, you know. Um, you know and he never escaped. Yeah, he was ruined by it. Oh. Mark does, um, I mean, and this will include one of my criticisms of the book, maybe. Um, but um, Mark throws it, throws in enough. Um, I mean, he, he, you know, there, there are, as you're reading along, there are, uh, you know, several times in the book to where, yeah, okay, you know, um, as, as you've all read the book, popular opinion was that she was innocent at the time. And um, so it wasn't like when it's one of those, everybody screaming that an injustice has, has been made when she was acquitted. And he's able to go through, he covers both the, what is it called? The, the There's the trial at the Azures or whatever, however you pronounce it. So yeah, he covers... Which the, is um, almost like a, a, a what we call in the United States a grand jury. It's almost it's the mini trial proving that there's enough evidence to go to the big trial. Yeah. Right. Day by day, uh, he covers both events. And um, so in that examination of the actual court proceedings day by day, uh, there are doubts thrown into the prosecution's case with the total botching of the numbers in the um, in the examination of the remains of the uh, sister, I believe, you know, putting numbers where they don't, and the level of arsenic present in the body and all this stuff. And then when, um, which was not, Mark was able to successfully unravel some of those inconsistencies. And then others, he would have to say, well, they must have just hit the wrong number on their typewriter. They meant to type a two instead of a one. And or things like, but anyway, it was a pretty sloppy job. Yeah. And 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 um and then when it when it was which is something I never knew, this whole discussion about the 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 level of arsenic present in the town's water supply and the fact that people are going to get their hair cut and the the hair follicles are examined and they contain levels in our, of arsenic, and then the realization that all of us have arsenic in our systems naturally which is nothing i knew about you know i'm a poetry major not a science major and and um but especially the 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 fact that you know people who had resided at the house prior to these folks had mysteriously died so there's this doubt that is created 
throughout the case that Mark deals with along the way at his remove, you know, a hundred years later. So you can kind of- criticism? Huh? This is My a criticism. criticism would have been, no, no, all that stuff's good. My criticism is the overall length. I felt that there were, that, um, I, uh, that there were things that could have been cut. I agree with you on that. I'll tell you one of my specific criticisms. So this is actually kind of funny. And this, this will, and I'm going to go back to, and this is, this is where I will show my bias. Uh, so there was that one long passage where he was talking, he was talking specifically about the James book where uh, he clearly did not like uh, that uh, James right. book where they had addressed. And I don't mind if like, if, if there's a book that has some inaccurate information and you want to address a specific part of it because it, it needs to be debunked. But he was, he was like every, like he clearly, that was like his Moby Dick white whale book of this person that the, it was so wrong in every single part and he went through and literally it we wasn't examined a an entirely was, different case right uh, no it, he he dismantled literally every single thing she got wrong on the case from the type right of house. but then there was a wasn't there and maybe it wasn't the jane's book but it, there was a different book the the, the the James book was about um, a, different, a different case, uh, yeah, and, in Croydon but, or somewhere. Yeah, yeah, the yeah in Croydon, but yeah. in but the, inside um, the book they had yeah talked yeah about yeah, this but, case. but right yeah, but James looked at several other poisoning cases as right. part of that book, and this was one of them. And Mark um, went off and and dismantled even those cases as well. Yeah, he did like, not like that. But, right. but here's the thing. In, in most other writers, like remember when we were in the prologue and we were talking about the difference between filler and, you know, and I said like authors read everything and they think it's all relevant and one man's filler is another man's, this needs to be in here. And I was thinking about it because I was about four pages into his like dismantling of the Jane's uh book before I realized I'm like wow this this really this is this doesn't need to be in here but it was like so well written and I was so entertained by his yeah, it was gripping wasn't book. it yeah yes. right. and I was like okay in any other author's book I would have been like bored about three pages ago because it wouldn't have been entertaining me so much mm -hmm. but I will agree like that probably didn't need to be there but again i'm a, it needed I'm a ghoul. To, i love that stuff but in and <laughs> in, in small in, in maybe smaller doses yeah like yeah. i do i do like it when okay so you know, a lot has been written about this case but nothing um as major as mark's book mm -hmm. um and and um so i do like reading books about a topic where that that where the topic has been handled by other authors before and I do like it when that author goes through and and just a lot of times you read a book that never mentions any other book about the case right. or what they think of it you know what I'm saying uh, and and those books suck in comparison to the ones that that do go through in the in this towards the end of the book and discuss the bibliography of the subject throughout time and yeah. maybe because I'm more of like a history of, of uh, criminology kind of a nerd. Yeah. 
it, it's, it's um, a literature review he's done at the end. He, he's done a literature mm-hmm. review on the topic um, mm-hmm. and given his analysis in that literature. Yes. And, and then, you know, and he's also given was... his opinions then at the end as well, rather than, you know, he hasn't dispersed them through the text. The text right. itself has been you yeah. know, quite factual. He has done. And, and that was the part where I was like, uh, I'd just rather read Mark's book than do, because like, but I mean, I was highly entertained by it. Yeah, and, it, and it's great how, you know, the <laughs> guy, we, we knew that the book, I, and I'm not sure what came out and you'll ask him, I'm sure, in your interview. Um, the publication was delayed because of him being able to discover new information. I believe it might have been, I'm guessing, the diary um, that he was able to get the transcripts from. I'm not sure. But but what I was but put it putting aside whatever, and we'll find out what what new information he came across that delayed the publication. Um back to talking about his his literary review of everything that's ever been written in the case he he meticulously took the time to read those works and then he he was able to draw connections between those works even so it's similar to the approach that like a robin odell would take to criminology that's why i kind of think that Mark is like a throwback to an earlier age of crime writing um, because he would read some, he, he discusses in his book an article that would have, would have appeared like let's say in the um, late 30s, early 40s. And there was two eras going on here writing about the case. One when no one wanted to be sued for liable and then the next is when everybody was presumed to be dead, when everyone was known to be dead or presumed to be dead. Um, but then he, so he reads all these works and he's able to, and he, and he explains their contents to the reader. And then he'll get to other authors down the road, like Colin Wilson, and, and be able to, okay, well, Colin Wilson repeats the, the same errors that were made in this earlier um a story that appeared in this crime anthology you know what i'm saying and so he he took the time to to make those connections and those parallels and and out and analyze those sources of all of this literature on the case that had been um produced in the 20th century um Maybe that's that why in it, itself would have been so time consuming. Maybe that's why it takes him 10 years to come out with a new book because <laughs> he does all of his research. I'm yeah. like, what's that really movie impressive. where yeah. the woman like kidnaps her favorite author and like ties him up in a cabin yeah. to make him write another book because she wants him to write yeah. another Misery. book. It probably yeah. takes him 10 years to write the new book because he spends so long completely familiarizing himself with the analysis of, of arsenic and statistical analysis and stuff like that, because those sections of the book, um, is, is, you know, this is, you know, they are so forensic the way he analyzes it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You can tell he understands this. Oh, and um, I don't uh, like, what uh, yeah. the heck? Yeah. And wh- wherever I've done, um, you know, a research project with Mark and something been involved in a, a research project with him, He's he's always seemed to have such an intimate understanding of areas that you know you wouldn't you know that as far as I'm aware he hasn't got any 
specialist experience in. I, I, as far as I'm aware, you know, Mark, Mark hasn't got a background in chemistry or anything or, or forensics. Probably um, he does. We don't know. Well, he maybe, could... maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it seems it seems to be that he, you know, he 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 looks into it to have such an understanding of it that he can speak about these things with such authority. Or maybe he does, maybe he's just completely blagging his way through it and he's just, you know, very confident about it. I don't know, but it, it seems to be he, he has, you know, intimate knowledge well, that understands these topics. Yeah, and we we were kind of aware of that with his work with, like you, you had said, you're the group that you used to work with him in was um, on uh, Team Syphilis. Hmm. And, um, and you um, know, Ripperologist Magazine has articles published about... Um, you know Annie Chapman's daughters and and, yeah, and all that. That's, that's the exact thing I was thinking of. Right, where it is it is statistical analysis and yeah, I mean he he does a deep dive. The guy has the ability. If he does, if you know, he's not a if he wasn't a specialist before he decides to tackle um, a particular subject, um, he becomes a specialist. Uh, I would and I would think rather quickly as his true gift. Of, of intellect to be able to do that he's a polymath um, i think is what we're trying to get at for the listener perhaps you might want to clarify what it means to be on team syphilis and doing a <laughs> deep dive into syphilis well, team, team syphilis was uh, a research group that worked on um what was it maybrick the maybrick case and then a- and annie chapman or yeah it was um it, it was, I think it was the Maybrick case. I, I don't think I was involved in the Maybrick side of things, but then it was, we looked at um, the epidemic of syphilis in late Victorian London and, you know, how that affected, you know, the, the Ripper victims. Um, and then from there, we also looked at the more modern case of the Long Island serial killer. Right. Thank and you. We the don't the just Annie want to Chapman. like let that hang out there. Yeah, and yeah, with the uh, advantages and everything, Chapman. I've still got my team syphilis badge somewhere. Mm-hmm. And with the Annie Chapman case, it had to do with uh, uh, a, an analysis of uh, her um, birth patterns yeah. and which child, which children died, which ones survived, or you know how long. You know, there's a way that you can statistically analyze. The course of syphilis. The cycle, yeah, the cycle of syphilis within a person, in this case, Annie Chapman, and and how it directly affects her birth rate, and and um and so, yeah, that was Team Syphilis's work. Okay, so a couple of criticisms I had with the book were one, there were footnotes. I am not a footnote person. A lot, a lot of them. Yeah. Oh yeah, I prefer endnotes. I am a fan of EndNotes. I'm not sure why he switched. Moat Farm had EndNotes and all of a sudden there's footnotes. Dramatically opposed. I have the attention span of a coked out chihuahua and I prefer all of my citations to be at the end and not distracting me on the page. I know that's a minor little petty thing, but... I, I personally prefer footnotes. So well, you're I, wrong. I don't know what to tell you. You're just absolutely because wrong. Because then the, the material is fresh in my head, hmm. right? No, yeah. no, wrong, incorrect. No, I, I got, I got feeling that could be more of an editorial choice from what I understand. But uh, yeah, Mm-mm. no, wrong. Uh, the other thing, and this is, this is not, um, this is not a, this is not about the author, but this is just sort of a, a general. Um, uh, I am, I am going to be strongly recommending people uh, to buy the book, but I did want to give uh, just a, a, a warning. I don't know if anybody out there is like me. 
I have a couple of headache conditions um, and um, I found it difficult to read the book because the book was printed on very bright white paper uh, with very tiny true black letter on true white paper. I have never come across paper this white in my life. And Jonathan can attest, Jonathan Menges got a PDF from the publisher to read because he's an American and, and you know, time delays, um, he had to get it. And I could not actually read the book. I had to get, end up getting the PDF from him. Uh, I actually ended up going, I actually ended up going to the eye doctor while I was trying to read this book because I literally thought, oh, I'm old. My vision has gone. I need glasses because I couldn't read the book. And it turned out I was just having, um, difficulty uh reading on the true white paper on the black print because of uh, i don't know that's if adam's know. fault both of your criticisms and then would be like <laughs> <Adam's> <laughs> no fault. i'm just saying that there are it's a it's a it's a there's a it's a visual accessibility thing i have headache issues i have eye strain issues and for people who have that they should know you're you're gonna have some accessibility issues um reading uh you might want to i did reach out to the publisher and I did ask if there was going to be a Kindle version of the book available. It is not currently available, but there will be a Kindle version of the book available and there will be one coming. Um, he did not have an exact time frame, um, but there will be one coming. If you have um, vision impairment issues, which uh, that, you know, you struggle to read in that way, you might want to wait for the Kindle book to come out. Uh, I did have that issue. Again, I have three different neurological conditions that make me have headaches. So John Reese didn't. Did you have a problem reading the book? I don't know if, if that was an issue. You, um, he, no, you're no, young. No, you have young eyes. I, I, I also get headaches and stuff like that, but uh, I, I found the book fine. As Same. long as I wasn't wearing my glasses while reading it, but I struggled to read while wearing my glasses anyway. So, uh, no, there's no criticism for, from me from that perspective. But yeah. I understand what you're saying because I know people, I've got friends who suffer from certain forms of dyslexia who, again, can't read on true white. They've got to have like coloured film and stuff like that. They put over books and stuff like that. So, no, yeah. I understand what you're saying um, there. Um, and uh, yeah, no. So that, that, that's just, it's not a criticism. It's just a, for people who have that issue, you should be aware. I'm, it's a notification, but uh, I, I want to be- Disclaimer, other books we review might have that problem as well, but because we, you know, I've only it, read Kindle versions, we may not know about it. <laughs> that is true. And legitimately, like, it's been so long since I've read a proper book. I, they could all be like that for all I know. Like, I, li I literally, this is the first book book. I've read in a while and I, I literally felt like, oh my gosh, my eyes are gone. I must go to the eye doctor. And I went to the eye doctor and the eye doctor was like, what do you, why, why are you here? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to read this book and I, I can't read the book. And he's like, well, your, your eyes are fine. I, I don't know what to tell you. And I'm like, oh, it's the paper. Cause it's, it literally had been so long since I've read a book. I completely forgot about the white paper thing. So um, yeah, so it could be on all of our books. I, I just happened to be reading this one on a real book and so anyway. So another small criticism I'll level at the book just to make it a little bit more fair and balanced is um, that um, when you buy this book, you might want to also buy a dictionary. Um, <laughs> That's not a criticism. Education is nothing to criticize. No, I will say, though, if your idea of a great book is, you know, a picture book with third grade vocabulary, this is probably not the book for you. I actually... The guy is so smart that it, it's like, you know, 
maybe he thinks that we're all everyone is as smart as he is you know big words that i had never heard before heard of before are used and um and then again like i said at the beginning um he'll name drop uh certain criminal cases um of the 20s and 30s but uh and how they're relevant to like for instance he'll say you know uh John Q. Public Barrister, just off the heels of the, um, the high-profile other case in this other town, and you know, name drop that criminal, I would have no idea who the hell that case he's talking about. So that could so, be a cultural thing. Although it would make it longer, it? the you know, you know, we don't want to encourage Mark to do a deep dive into every single criminal case he names drops into this book. But maybe a brief ex a brief explanation of some of the other criminal cases that some of the and but you that know, would be like an American writer like going into an explanation of who you know Dillinger or Capone was you know like is there just a presumption that if it's if it's deep into the cultural zeitgeist are they gonna just assume well, no, like when he will the like he'll rat, rattle off a few of the other criminal cases that had been happening within the last five or ten years of this one yeah um and and like one of them would be you know the william wallace murder now that i would be familiar with um so but it's it's the other and he does nothing to explain what the william wallace murder was or who he killed or anything like that it was just, it's just name dropping famous or what if the Hearn case is famous I had never heard of it but um so I would be familiar with like the Wallace murder case that he would mention unfamiliar with and have never heard of some of the others you know when he talks about Crippen of course everybody knows about the Crippen or I would hope everybody would know about the Crippen case but if you're unfamiliar with the Crippen case like I am some of the other criminal cases that Mark alludes to, then the reader might find themselves a bit lost. I think there's a bit, I think, I think the ones where he just name drops, they came off the so-and-so case. I don't think it's that important to know necessarily what that case is. The only exception I can think of is I know he mentions the Armstrong case a few times, and he specifically references something that happened in the Armstrong case with a box of chocolates. Um, maybe, you know, some background to that would have been useful, perhaps, uh, from that perspective. But I think that a lot of people who are British and reading a British true crime book would, would know about the Armstrong case because it's a very famous case for us. But, you know, for international readers, then certainly that's a... A valid point. Um, my, I, I've got a similarish criticism. Um, it's it's about context of things. So in one of the early chapters, um, Annie's referenced as making a bit of a big fuss about how everyone thinks that she accidentally gave food poisoning to Alice because of the tinned salmon and that they don't trust tinned food and stuff like that. And I thought at the time that was a little bit of a strange thing. Um, but then, coincidentally, when reading the last book we reviewed about cream, mm -hmm. and there was um, a belief that the, it may have been poisoning by, I think it was actually tin salmon again, and the author there went into this like long thing about this history of contaminations and poisoning from tinned food. Um, right. Okay, it was 
what, 30, 40 years before, but presumably that type of thing might have been something going on in the society, you know, maybe still a bit paranoid about it. So I thought big context into why everyone assumed it was because it was tinned food, but maybe a bit useful there. Mm, good catch. Yeah, probably because I had just come off of that other book. It was already in my head, so I didn't need it. But that's a well, good, I, I read. Yeah, I read that bit just before reading the cream book. Because ah. I, I, I started this one, then started cream, and then came back to this one. So another part, and uh, in, in, I guess it's a little bit of a spoiler, but um, and uh, another part of the book that I enjoyed, he mentions it and then comes back to it a couple times is um, when the salmon sandwiches, there's this discussion of uh, if the salmon was even poisoned, you know, they would turn a weird blue color and, and people or animals shouldn't eat blue food because it's a sign of poison. So if she presented the uh, Allison um, Henry, is that what I Thompson's or whatever, um, the husband, with um, with poisoned food, then it would have been of a blue color, and maybe they they wouldn't have eaten that. And I don't think the waitress at the the diner that they were in uh, mentioned it being blue or anything like that. And then and then it's like, okay, well, if one were to present um, poisoned sandwich halves, a stack of poisoned sandwich halves to a, a table of three, where they were sitting customarily who would pick up the first slice um the husband would defer to the wife who ended up getting poisoned Mm -hmm. and and um and then the person presenting the food would be the last to choose so the order in which the point because they all ate the sandwich a slice of the sandwich which one was present and on which side of the plate would have been you know this woman Al, uh, Annie, when she put placed that plate of sliced uh, salmon sandwiches down on the table, facing a certain direction, knowing the customs of the time, who would defer to who to eat to grab the first slice? They'd take the slice off the top. They wouldn't take it the first slice and put it aside to pick the slice underneath it. Things like that. I really enjoyed that little Yeah. Slice. I did you know? too, because it's it's behavioral and it's true. People know behavioral conditioning. If and if that uh, thought process was present in Annie Hearn when she placed that plate of food onto the table, then it goes to show that she was a Cunning. methodical, um, real, real, a really sick individual, you know as serial poisoners typically are, but it kind of, that whole discussion then gave us an insight of just how dangerous this woman possibly was. You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, if she was guilty, hypothetically speaking, I mean, she methodically poisoned her sister for years before, Mm -hmm. you know, finishing her off. Uh, she was cunning. I mean, there's no question about it if she was guilty that she was a cunning individual to carry that out over the course of years. And I, it was an interesting book. It was an interesting case. I am annoyed that, I don't know, it's like, it's 
it was a good book, but in a way it's just, I don't know. I'm unsatisfied. Like I, not un like I enjoyed it. I'm not, I don't know. It's just, and I'm not unsatisfied. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's like one of those I'm still thinking about a little bit, which is a great book. If I'm still thinking about it once the covers are closed, I love the book, but I'm Mark, write another book. I need another I, one. Dang it. <laughs> I, I, I think the best type of true crime cases are the ones where afterwards you're still not sure about things. You're thinking about things. You're yes. weighing up the evidence yourself. I, I, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I think the best true crime books are the ones that don't, that can't wrap everything up in the neat, neat little bow. That, you know, you've got to have, you know, afterwards, well, how did she, how did she do this? When did she do this? You know, did she do this? It, it, you know, it's, I think the open and shut cases are less interesting than these ones. They've got little, little conundrums and, uh, um, because, you know, life isn't like a novel or a TV show or a film, you know, not, you know, there's a simple resolution to everything. I think that's what I like about the genre. Well, and part of that is, is because we don't know what happened next. Well, yeah, Mark says that as well. You know, the rumor that you know she went to, you know, she went to work as a cook, and you do one day, you know. And... Yeah. So we all recommend um, the uh, case of the salmon sandwiches. Yes. Yes. I okay. So, what are our four out or what are our out of five stars? What are we giving this? We'll do it well, but let's let's say, do we have any final thoughts, comments, anything, and then give our I out will, of five? I would just like to say that not everyone liked this book. Really? My dog absolutely hated this book. <laughs> because every time I went to read this book, my dog was determined to stop me. She was jumping on me. She was trying to bite the book. And my lovely numbered signed collector's edition has got a hole in the front because, and claw marks because she decided to attack it when I left it on the coffee table. So for oh some reason, the, 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 the canines don't like this book. But, you know, you can't please everyone, Mark. Your dog is a fierce critic. It, yes, indeed, yeah. Savage. <laughs> I know that I know this is so stripe gives the case of the salmon sandwiches zero out of five stars so zero out of I five mean, from stripe I think stripe was disappointed because they were they weren't actual salmon sandwiches for her to eat I, I think that's what it is you know she was just fair criticism um fair. I uh my final thoughts would be um the book mentions the notable British trial series which Mark is a part of the relaunch of that series through Mango Books. And apparently they only deal with cases that where there is a conviction. Here, having uh, Annie Hearn being acquitted, there's not a notable trial series book about this case. This kind of fits into that, that milieu of the cases tackled in the notable British uh, trials series. Um, so, um, if Mark sticks to writing those kinds of books, maybe you know what I'm saying. Let's let's get the 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 um, a lot of these um, interwar crimes that aren't the subject of notable notable British trial series volumes. Um, get books on that. Put it right next to your volumes of notable British trial series. It fits right in. Um, it's written really well. A few parts I thought could have been cut more towards the last like quarter of the book so i give it four and a half stars okay john reese what's your stars rating um i'm um again i really enjoyed the book 
Um, I, you know, I understand the criticisms that uh, uh, Jonathan had, but I, I, I'm not sure I agree with them myself. But I understand them. I liked the uh, the things that he think, you know, could have been cut. I like the literature review where he just demolishes the other books. Um, I enjoyed that too. Just like maybe a um, little less detail. A little less. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe if there was more literature on the case and you know, there were numerous books, he was, you know, um, it might have got a bit tedious, but because there wasn't much, I thought it was an okay length. Um, I am, um, I, I kind of like how um, the um, the book is very uh, objective as well. Mark doesn't seem to say that yes, she must have done it. Yes, she must have done it until he does his analysis at the end. Um, so uh, I'm I'm gonna say because I don't because I I, I don't want to give it a full five stars because it might seem biased. I'm gonna say four and three quarter stars. Yeah, I'm closer to that too. I like yeah. Al, like Ali had said. I got the PDF volume. Um, this is a book that I want to I want to buy the physical copy of. Yeah, oh, even it's... though I've read it already, hmm. I won't let my pets anywhere near it. Yeah, I put it on the bookshelf. <laughs> you know, it is a book after that I I would w- want to own. Yeah, it is also you know um, I, I you know it is a beautifully designed book as well. Um, the cover, um, it, it's so evocative and interesting, and the, you know it's uh, you know that's something you got to say for I think most mango boxes that they're never they're never bad covers really are they? Um, and this is a this is a particular snazzy one I think. Okay, I guess for me, um, I love good writing above all. Um, my seething hatred of people who write better than me is going to <laughs> just pure out of petty and spite prevent me uh, from giving it five stars now. Um, there were a few places where, um, again, there was a little bit of padding there was a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, I would say 4.5 is where I'm going to land um, primarily for things like British spelling. We've got to dispense with that. I mean, come on, mold, M-O-U-L-D, could, would, should, mold. Come right, on, guys. on general principle, I am now changing my review rating and my star. <laughs> I'm going for five stars. <laughs> general principle you british people and your extraneous views they aren't needed dispense with them already they're useless (laughs) (laughs) no it was it was a it was there were there were lines in there that are just freaking amazing and really annoyed me by their amazingness and i strongly recommend this book to anybody who appreciates good writing and a good mystery. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll leave it at that. The Case of the Salmon Sandwiches by M.W. Aldridge. Get it. This concludes the book club portion of the podcast. And joining me now in what might well be a world exclusive is the author himself, M.W. Aldridge, to discuss the book. Thank you for joining us and agreeing to appear. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, so my first question is, is uh, so when I did the first episode of Off the Shelf, and also when I did the Petticoat Parlay, just as general when I'm going to be reviewing a book, I do uh, what 
uh, if it were any other citizen, would be considered a little bit of light stalking. But because you're an author, it's considered research. Yeah, uh, you know. acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's a little bit hard to do any even a little bit of research on you. Uh, you don't have an author's page. Uh, you don't do any interviews. You don't do any uh, press. Uh, do you not want to sell books? Is um, there's you don't really see, you seem to write books and just sort of throw them out into the world and uh, and you don't really promote them at all. Is that a is that a, are you not interested in selling books? Um, no, I'm not, and. Uh, the whole thing about marketing and promotion uh, just sends a shiver down my spine and uh, I feel com I feel incredibly uncomfortable with it. So um, I kind of just rely on nature to take its course, really. Um, I try not to f force my products down anyone else's throat. Well, I have to say that I will be honest with you that I'm very, very uh, upset by this because uh, I think you are a really good author. Uh, one of the things that I harped on quite a lot in the podcast was it annoys me tremendously how good of an author you are. It uh, You have a great command of the language and uh, you also have a really keen insight into people you occasionally write things about human nature and you have insight into people that is on occasion uh you you'll write a turn of phrase about the human state or the human condition or just basic human behavior that just freaking annoys me about how good it is and uh uh, you write a book maybe once a decade or so. Uh, does it take you that long to write a book or do you have like a whole stack of books that are just hanging out in your garage somewhere that I need to go like break into your house and pilfer so that I have more to read? Yeah, so the origin of this book goes back, I was trying to think about this earlier on, probably 11 years, maybe 12, um, to, uh, to and I, I remember reading on the bus, Dan Farson's, account of the case and sort of thinking to myself hmm, that's interesting and then um at the time that was sort of shortly before um another one of my books called the moat farm mystery came out and i was kind of thinking well what what will i do after that project is finished without really sort of having any any clear purposeful idea of of what that might be um and then this is terribly middle class, so I do apologise. But my parents, having reached retirement, um, bought a converted barn in Cornwall. Um, so I went down there with them. Um, and, you know, Cornwall's lovely and all that sort of thing. And I thought, well, I, re I remember reading about that case um, that Dan Farson wrote about. And, I, and, you know, Cornwall's actually also, you know, by English standards, not by American standards, but by English standards, it's quite a big place. Um, and I thought, well, I, 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 you know, I remember reading about that case. I wonder, my geography of Cornwall isn't very good. I, I wonder where that, that thing occurred. Um, and as it happened, it occurred down the road from the place they'd bought. So I thought, well, maybe I will look into it further then. So, and, I, and I started to do that. And I started to sort of um, collate my research materials and things like that. Because I realised that there was actually some, there's, I think, quite a good story here worth telling. Um, which hadn't really been told in any detail before. And um, then I started writing the book uh, in 2012. And here we are 
a decade later um, and the thing is out. So it, uh, it, it was actually finished. The text was basically finished a long time ago and it's only had minor tweaks since then. Um, but that is the reason why I have forgotten most of it. Um, <laughs> you I, said have, I, I have done other things since then. Um, you said it was this, delayed because there was something new that came out uh, prior, right yeah. prior to its publication. Yeah, it was. And um, that doesn't account for the entire decade, obviously. <laughs> um, the lost decade, as I call it. But there was, yeah, there, there was something I read in August last year that when the text was on the point of kind of like almost going to the printers, I thought, oops, okay, um, I need to include that. So then there was another delay when I dealt with that. Um, so that things have things have happened. Um, it's just it, it's just kind of languished on my desktop for um, you know a quarter of my life, and and you know I'm glad I'm really glad it's finally out because I think there is a good story to be told there, and um, and it was I kind of fell into it more or less by chance, and uh, that's that's the way I kind of like to do things is that I don't necessarily get very far if I go around sort of looking for projects to work on but in the normal run of events um, chance and fortune will throw something in my direction and that's what happened with this so I, I'm glad it came out it, it, it was definitely a project uh, worth doing and I really enjoyed it. So being that this book is as you said been languishing more or less in your parents' barn, just getting for the last several mm. years. Are there other books then that have, that you've got in a cupboard somewhere that are waiting to see the light of day? And what do we need to do to get them on a shelf? Uh, wait, you have to wait. Um, <laughs> so th there, is a, there is something else I'm sort of close to completing. It's actually quite... And then after that, I, I actually don't have any ideas. I am stuck. Um, and I'm waiting for that sort of happy event to, to occur and something to sort of chop up that interests me enough. With the salmon sandwiches, it's actually quite difficult for me at this point to even imagine how I spent the amount of time that I spent working on that book and writing at that length about a single case. It, it just seems like a if I if I had to if I thought I was at the beginning of a project, which would result in another. 300 pages of writing. I, I don't know how I would do that. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I can do that anymore. The level of concentration it must have taken and the energy invested and things like that. I don't know, I don't know whether I have that anymore. So, um, so we'll have to see what happens next. Um, but, but yeah, something normally something just turns up and that's the direction I go in. It just hasn't quite happened yet, but there's no point forcing it. It happens by nature anyway. Have you ever considered writing fiction? Because one of the things we talked about when we were talking about your book was that um, along with your annoyingly good writing, you really do have a great description ability to draw scenes. And uh, the, obviously you didn't know these people, but you're able to draw the characters almost really, really well. And we sort of off podcast but later when we were just sort of sitting around gossiping we were talking about how in our minds you're you know you have a, a you're you're you have a pseudonym where your writing is like 
Mildred, you know, a, 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 mm. a detective British woman writing, you know, detective fiction somewhere in the off. And you've got like a whole series of books that we don't know about that you're writing um, under a pseudonym somewhere. And we were really hoping that that was the case, but obviously we're sure that's not true. But have you ever considered writing fiction? Because honestly, with your gift for uh narration I think you would be really great at it and maybe that would be a light pastime for you while you uh wait for the next inspiration to strike yeah I mean that's very nice of you to say I one of the things I I think about this book is that I I do wonder is my description good enough do people understand who's who and what's motivating everyone um, cause I'm not actually sure that is my forte most of the time. And in terms of fiction, um, I, uh, the, the narration is one thing, but imagination would be another thing. I have a zero imagination alley. So, um, I am, <laughs> I fall back entirely on the things I read, uh, that already exist. I, I can't, I, I don't think I can think of an interesting story. Um, but I can, I can do some things I can sort of delve into an interesting story that already exists and um, hopefully present it in a way that is interesting um, and do the research around that because partly out, out of you know the, the sheer luxury of sort of living in London having things like the National Archives practically around the corner you know 45 minutes on the tube um and and i can go through all those papers and 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 do that research um without the sort of practical difficulties that i might encounter if i was living in john o'groats or stockholm or um you know uh, beijing so um so i have i have access to those sorts of materials quite readily and yeah that's that's where i am in my head I, I i will go and explore those but i cannot um i cannot imagine imagining something if you if you can see what i mean yeah and i will say like i thought you um i have read uh, moat farm and also this book and i think um that you did a much much uh cleaner job uh not that moat farm wasn't good but i think that the narration in this one uh was much cleaner than in Moat Farm. Um, not that Moat Farm, you didn't draw the narration there, but there were so many more characters and so much more uh, chaos going on in that whole scene. But I think that this was, you know, very well done. And there was some really great insights into the people in this one that I thought were just, again, very well done. Um, so you mentioned that you uh, or a Londoner, as someone who will be visiting London in a couple of months, what's a place that you would recommend that's not a typical tourist trap to see? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that, well, it depends what you want to do, Ali. If you want to, if you want to sit in sort of nice pubs and things, then you should go to Clerkenwell. I think there's lots of nice pubs in Clerkenwell. Uh, you know, the, the oldish parts of the city, um, are really worth exploring and <clears throat> London being London it's a big sort of melange of different things and you can go from you know it's changed a lot even in the time that I've lived here um, you can go from parts which are quite salubrious to parts which are the opposite of salubrious in 200 meters and um, you can go from parts which are really new to parts which are really old in 200 meters it's a it's a big patchwork and you know, you know as someone as I read somewhere, um, 
someone's taxi driver once said, you know, London will be a nice city when they finish building it. And that's, and it's true. Um, they just haven't quite finished it yet. Uh, but you can find all sorts of interesting things um, around Clark and well, um, you know, the uh, St. James's Mayfair, that sort of thing. You know, these are quite places which are quite different characters really, but um yeah, there's there's lots of you've got to get out there and walk around and um, and you know pick your eyes up off the pavement because actually the best bits are above eye level. Good advice. I'll take that in mind. Now there seems to be something like in general about London and England in general in sort of the late Victorian, Edwardian, pre-war era that seems to have a lot in terms of these sensationalistic crimes. Mm. We've got Crippen and Cream and, you know, mm. obviously all of them. Do you, what do you think it was about all of these crimes sort of centered, the cultural zeitgeist of, of the era that lends itself to this sort of, not only the crimes, but the fascination with the crimes? You know, I really don't, I really don't know. It was, um, you know, George Orwell speaks about the golden, the golden era of um, English murder from sort of eighteen fifty to nineteen twenty-five, and it's sort of difficult to disagree with that um, because some of those, some of the crimes that were committed then are the ones that are still being written about today, um, and uh, and argued about. And I don't know you know in a hundred years time what people will be saying about the early 21st century for example i don't i don't know whether what our sort of equivalents of those those crimes would be or whether we whether there's stuff that's happened let's say in the last 20 years or so that will be written about in in that sort of volume so i i honestly don't know i think that, that you end up with you don't end up with you know dougal um who is the anti-hero of the Moat Farm mystery is um, is a, a typical, almost stereotypical, moustache twirling Victorian villain, um, and you think that ought to be the preservation of the theatre? Really, that ought to be just some uh, like, like a trope with which people operate uh, in in fiction, and then you know, and but Dougal's the Dougal's the, like the real life example, and he's not the only one. Um, so you get these you get these very vivid characters um from from that period and i think with taking annie hearn from the, the salmon sandwiches which is out slightly outside that sort of golden period all well described um you know the level of fantasy that people could indulge in and you know don't get me wrong there are plenty of people nowadays who are indulging in fantasy but a lot of the time you know <laughs> Nowadays, you can get talk, you can get caught out from that because you're leaving your digital footprint everywhere, and you know people are going to find you one way or the other. Um, back in 1930, you could you you know you could pretend to be if you wanted to um, the widow of a war hero and things like that. And who could who could say otherwise? Um, so I think the opportunity existed, and just some in, just some really incredible characters whose motivations are really interesting to inquire into um i guess it was just that that was just the way things were that back then yeah we were trying to talk about the book without spoiling it which made it yeah. a really hard podcast yeah. to do because i found the character really interesting and i was i don't know if you saw the bbc show uh, the landscapers 
where it was basically the, it was about a real life murder case, but they completely fictionalized it and made the murderer a woman who lived entirely in this fantasy world. And of course I couldn't talk about it through that because neither Jonathan, uh, John hadn't watched it. And so, but I was trying to like, you had, you had put a line in there about uh, now, of course I don't have it in front of me. I, I referenced it brilliantly on the podcast originally, but, but it was about fantasy and, and the reality and how we, you know, the intersection of it, but, um, but it, it is that kind of thing where at some point, you know, you could reinvent yourself and you could live a life that, you know, your, your mind created for you, which we don't really have the luxury of nowadays. Well, after, but, after the Moat Farm mystery came out, I remember David Green wrote to me and said, um, talked about Samuel Herbert Dougal's wife, um, who was much more aware of and involved with the things that Samuel Herbert Dougal was doing than I think had previously been understood. And he said, she's, uh, she's, she's an unreliable narrator. And she is, mm-hmm. that, that, that's true. Um, and then, of course, um, I end up with the Salmon Sandwiches, um, where you have another unreliable narrator. And I think I'm done with unreliable narrators now <laughs> because they're really hard work. Yeah, it's hard when you can't when there's nothing you can really pin it on. But to me, that's what made Annie Hearn like such a fascinating character, because I said at the end of it, it's like, on the one hand, it was such a good book, but I was so unsatisfied by it, because you don't, I mean, you know, but you don't know. And there's no justice, there's no satisfaction, there's no, there's no resolution, there's no anything and it's so annoying <laughs> but yeah. it's no, you, a, well you, you end up with that sort of ne- negative proof thing which is that right. if it wasn't if it wasn't her then it wasn't anybody but exactly. was it her right so our next book that we're doing is a Crippen book do you have any firm justice opinions on Crippen have you read yeah. the you know especially with the latest on the DNA do you have any decisive opinions on that so this is who's the author of that book? Remind me. It's don't ever ask me the name of anything. I can't okay. remember. I'm yeah. terrible. Yeah, I, I he's mean, the one who did the DNA, and it turned out that the DNA was not. Uh, well, he, a, he he's not the one who did the DNA, but he right, is, he he, but, he writes he about is, the DNA. He yeah. is writing about the DNA results, right. Um, right? Which, uh, which have been, you know, my, in my view, totally disposed of already. Um, as unreliable oh uh, well yeah, yeah. would you like to come on our book club and discuss this <laughs> we would um, love <laughs> i could try to do that actually i could try would to you? do that we would be yeah. delighted to have you if you would we would love to have a guest uh if you would like to come on i would be happy to have you yeah uh, i'm i would so I also know what Nick Connell thinks about this. Nick Connell being sort of like the world expert in Crippen and Walter Dew. Um, I know what he thinks about that book as well. Um, and I know what he thinks about the DNA because he, t- he says so in his book, Dr. Crippen. Um, so I kind of, I'm kind of on his side. Um, and, but I haven't read this, this new book. I, I'm aware of it, but I will try and get a copy um, and actually sit down and read it. Um, well, you, then, of yes, course, I, have a standing I, invitation to any book club that we do. So if we're ever doing a book that you want to jump in on, you are welcome. Are this- I mean, I, I, would like to, I would like to read books, Ali, but unfortunately my, um, 
you know, my, my lifetime ambition of watching every single video on YouTube. Um, I still haven't quite achieved that yet. So, well, I have some stunning, uh, beauty YouTube videos that I can recommend you to, if you want to learn how to, uh, paint your nails or, uh, the latest in, uh, lipsticks. Yeah. Send them through. I will, I will watch anything, you know, you you can't actually be a YouTube completist until you've watched everything. So absolutely. Send it through. I will. Well, it was lovely talking to you and I really appreciate you coming on. No, thank you again for the invitation. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, hearing the podcast. Uh, I, I enjoyed the last one uh, about Dean Jobs book and I particularly enjoyed it when you asked for uh, a number of stars out of five and John Reese said three and three quarters, which I just thought was, you know, that's so uh, whether that was, whether you were going down to the quarter of a star, I don't know in your, in your sort of, in your vision of, of how to, how to score books, but I'm, I'm intrigued to, I'm intrigued to find out. Oh, we might. are nitpicky to the okay. nth degree and we will okay. be nitpicky to the nth degree. All right. Well, I'm hoping for a sort of 3.791 average or something like that. Oh, well, you're going to be disappointed, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. Well, it is what it is. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Ali. This concludes this episode of Rippercast Off the Shelf, The Case of the Salmon Sandwiches. We would like to thank the author, M.W. Oldridge, for agreeing to appear on our show in what might be a once-in-a-lifetime world-exclusive interview. I've reached out to the publisher, who has informed me that hopefully, by the time you're listening to this podcast, the Kindle version of the book should be available for purchase. And if you choose to purchase it, we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. At this time, I would normally promote the book we will be reviewing next month, because it's hard for our listeners to participate in book club if they don't know what the next book will be. However, I find myself with a bit of a dilemma. In the few weeks since I purchased my copy of April's book, the price on the U.S. website has risen from $7.99 to what is, in my opinion, the extortionate price of $22.49 for the Kindle version. While I'm sure that all of our listeners are adults and can decide for themselves whether they wish to pay that amount of money for a Kindle version of a book of unknown quality. I don't really know if I want to promote a book with extortionate pricing schemes, especially when I am unfamiliar with the author and have no idea of its relative value. So at this time, I am choosing not to promote the book in advance and will hold off until the actual show where I will give my full and complete opinion of the book. And believe you me, it will be a complete and thorough examination of the book. And I hope that the author paid attention in grammar school, for I will be rigorously analyzing every punctuation marker, word choice, and turn of phrase. If you're going to charge $22.49 for a Kindle book, it had better be the best damn book ever written. So apologies for not letting you know what next month's book will be, but if you have any recommendations about books you'd like to hear us review, drop us a line at RipperCast on Twitter. And until next time, thanks for listening. Now I really want a salmon sandwich.